Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today I'm really, really excited. We have a fantastic founder, a founder that he's doing it now for the second time. So as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit. We're going to be learning about entering an old boys club type of industry. We're going to be learning about M&A uh, transactions that didn't achieve the outcome that was perhaps, you know, like it thought about. Uh, also, we're going to be talking about fundraising. You name it, but definitely a lot of deal making. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Alex Israel. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thank you for welcoming me. This is wonderful. Fantastic. Fantastic, Alex. So originally born and raised in L.A. So how was the upbringing, you know, growing up with all that crazy traffic that you guys have going on there? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm one of those rare born and raised Angelinos. Now that you're 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 bringing up the the horrible mobility experience that is Los Angeles, I'm sure it really shaped uh, my career trajectory to spend my whole career dedicated to mobility. But it was great. It was great. I uh, I grew up on the west side of Los Angeles. I went to a, a high school in LA called Crossroads. Finally escaped for college, but back down here for graduate school. But it was wonderful. There's you know LA is this dynamic city where you can see a new piece of the city every day for the rest of your life and never see all of Los Angeles. So it was wonderful, wonderful growing up here, great childhood with dynamic parents. And my mom was a psychologist. My dad was a set designer for plays and operas, a unique, great upbringing. That's amazing. And, and, and in your case, you studied, you ended up studying business and economics, and then you did a, a your road deal, no, in, 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 in the, in the corporate world, you know, before going at it as an entrepreneur and, and you, you went to the Walt Disney, you did Viacom. I'm sure that you learned, you know, quite a fair amount of, of good stuff from such great companies. But I guess that was the, 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 the segue into building your first company. So how was, how was that, you know, experience like? You know, it's really interesting, Alejandro. I, I would say generally I took a very non-traditional path to going into entrepreneurship. So I went to undergraduate, studied business and economics. Um, which was great, but I don't think I would do it again. I think I would definitely be a computer, uh, computer science major. I would do it all over again. I think that's more applicable to my career path. Uh, and then I went uh, and came back to Los Angeles and got my Master of Fine Arts. 
in film um, and producing. And, you know, it's always people always ask me what the what the parallel is between entrepreneurship and film. And I would say that, you know, there are two very clear through lines for me. One, creativity. I think being an entrepreneur is just fundamentally creative. Um, it's about creative problem solving, creative deal making. Um, and more than anything else, it's about, you know, starting a business is about taking something from abstraction and bringing it all the way to fruition. And that's exactly the same with film. You take an idea and you put it on the screen. And here we take an idea that's something just in, just an inkling, as you and I have done before, Alejandro, and we turn something that's just, you know, a glimmer and we turn that into a, a product that people can use on a regular basis. So then let's talk about Park Me, because that was the the first one, you know, that you wanted to have people use on a regular basis. So how did you come up with the idea and what was that process of going from incubation to creation and to launching? Yeah, that was the first. Uh, I guess, for better or worse, I'm a serial entrepreneur now. The the first startup I founded was called Park Me. Um, we invented a technology called real-time parking, telling consumers all over the world where parking was available and licensing that data into most of the largest navigation companies from from Porsche to, to Waze and everyone in between. Um, you know, I, I really think that, for me, one of the core tenets of a of a great entrepreneur or a great product is a, is a product that you yourself are going to, or you, you yourself are going to use. And for me, parking is always a nightmare in Los Angeles. You know, I, I was late for a movie with my previous co-founder at the time. We were lifelong best friends and we missed the movie because we couldn't find parking. And we just realized something had to change. It couldn't be this bad. Uh, so we launched Park Me. Uh, right in uh, 2009 and raised around $10 million of venture financing, scaled the company and then sold that company in 2015 to Enrix, which was uh, a roller coaster unto itself. I can't imagine. And, and what was the, um, the business model there? I mean, how did it work and how do you guys make money with Parkmate? Yeah, the, the core business model was actually relatively straightforward, which is not everyone needs to pay for parking at the end of a, a journey, but everyone needs to find parking. So ParkMe was fundamentally a data company, um, and we would aggregate data across the globe as to where parking was located and the availability of that parking, from parking on the side of the street all the way to garages. And we gathered data from Los Angeles to China to India and most of the largest uh, countries in between. Um, and the, the core premise was that we could create a paradigm shift within navigation whereby consumers no longer needed to be directed to the front door of their final destination, but could instead be directed to a parking lot or parking space associated with their final destination. So we took all of that data and licensed it directly into most of the largest navigation portals globally. So if you go into your car or you go into Google or Waze and you see all those blue P's that represent parking spaces or parking locations, that data all effectively comes from ParkMe, or at this point, the company that acquired ParkMe, Enrix. Got it. So then let's talk about the the acquisition. <clears throat> because obviously your first baby, you know, gets a good first outcome. I mean, obviously that's not the that's not the rule of thumb, no? Because it, typically the first time around, you know, it's, it's kind of like tougher. You need to make all the mistakes and all that stuff. But in this case, you found, you know, a good outcome. So let's talk about, you know, that that journey and that that acquisition process, you know, can you tell us how did that come about and, and what, was the, what was the process like for you guys? Of course. <laughs> I was thinking, 
uh, Alejandro, you're absolutely right. I mean, your first time around, you make every mistake possible. I mean, you look back, I just can't believe how many mistakes we made, how many errors, how many misjudgments. I think that our acquisition was prototypical in, in the context that, as many other acquisitions, we were acquired by our largest partner. Inrix was our largest partner. They were the largest supplier of, or one of the largest suppliers of automotive data at the time. And um, it was a very natural synergistic acquisition. Um, purely from kind of an economic standpoint, it made sense for them and it made sense for us. Um, you know, it was a really interesting process. I'm trying to think. It's, you know, it's, it's one of these things that nothing ever goes the way you plan, especially in an M&A transaction. As you're, as you're familiar, I remember it was 2015, sitting in my boardroom, my co-founder, we have final docs printed out in front of us. We're about to sign. And one of the most junior employees walks into the room and says, Alex, Alex, this letter came for you. And we'd been served with, with, <laughs> with a litigation notice. Oh uh, and it was the day of close. Um, oh my and God. it just, you can imagine the, the blood just draining from my face. Um, and it was a patent troll that was suing us at the time. You know, it's fascinating because it could have killed the deal. We were really lucky it didn't kill the deal. Um, in fact, it just delayed the deal by about 90 days. But that was, you know, something completely outside of my control. Often it's in your control or often it's in your, your realm of understanding. But this was a perfect example of something that was out of my control and independent of our mistakes just led to a potential nightmare. Um, I'd say the biggest lesson for me that comes out of that is truly to this day, time kills all deals. And just like how fast you can get through those M&A transactions, the better a lot of the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, and and, and in many instances, you kind of like experience to deal fatigue either on the buy side or on the sell side. So you definitely want that momentum. And I find that that momentum too, you know, can be applicable to, to fundraising. And we'll talk, we'll talk now about, you know, the fundraising experience too with your, with your next company. But, but here, you know, after the, the transaction, you join Inrix and you were with them for a few years, you know, doing what, what some people call as the vesting and resting. You know, I'm not sure how much resting was there, <laughs> but definitely vesting. And, and then, then after that, you know, at one point you decided to really go at it again with your next company, which is Metropolis. So, so tell us about, you know, like how you really got Metropolis, you know, the idea knocking on your door and, and what was that process to, to, to bringing, you know, this to market? Alejandro, I love the, the nomenclature vesting and resting. I'm going to have to use that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, earnouts are such a, such an interesting component of, of startup life, but, um, you know, I was, I was two years into Enrix, um, and I think I was ready. You know, I think there, there were two things going through my mind. One, I love being an entrepreneur. I love, you know, this, this concept. We started this, this narrative with this idea of taking something from abstraction to fruition. I love leading teams. Um, and I think I wanted another bite at the apple. I think the other thing for me was I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder in the context you know, independent of ArcMe, which was, which was for all intents and purposes, a great success. I think the chip on my shoulder was tied to the fact that I didn't disrupt parking. 
um, parking's this old school boys club of an industry that really, for the most part, to a great extent, hasn't evolved in a long time. And I set out with ParkMe to truly disrupt the user experience associated with ParkMe. And after building the company, after exiting the company, and then after you know becoming an executive at Inrex, I looked around and parking was still effectively the same. Um, while ParkMe was a success, our core mission to disrupt parking hadn't succeeded. So I wanted to take another swing at the bat. I wanted to satiate this chip on my shoulder. And I realized that the only way to do that was to disrupt the industry from the ground up, was to find a way to not only change the experience for the consumer, but fundamentally change the urban landscape and how people interact with parking across the United States. So then in that case, you know, what were, what were the early days like? I mean, how did you bring this to life? I mean, and, and, and also when you were thinking about, you know, I, I guess, you know, the execution of this and putting the team together, I'm sure that you learned quite a bit with ParkMe that, that you knew you perhaps wanted to do differently with Metropolis. So anything that you can share there? Oh, so many lessons, Alejandro. I think that... What would be the top three? You know, I, I think first and foremost, and we were so young when we started Parkman. We, we surrounded ourselves with our friends, and which was great. There was a, there was a camaraderie. There was a loyalty. Um, there was a, a, fun, a, a warm kind of warmth of culture. Um, and we have that today. I think the... The difference would be, one, how I assembled the team, and two, how I thought about investors. Um, I'll start with the investor side. You know, I think that there's this sentiment within the investment community, and, and I bring up investors because, for better or worse, and you know this, Alejandro, that we spend a lot of our careers raising money oh, yeah. uh, in these large kind of scale capitalization initiatives. And a lot of investors qualify themselves as strategic. And that can be in their strategic relationship to their portfolio company. That can be that they're part of a larger entity that could provide strategic value to your asset uh, or your company. I think the biggest question for me is how, or for me at the time, was how do I define what a strategic investor is? And what am I going to look for when I try to assemble a boardroom? And the biggest shift was, I think at ParkMe, I was looking for capital. I think at Metropolis, what I was looking for was a specific type of capital. And for me, it was strategic capital. And what that meant was something very specific. And it's not the normal nomenclature associated with strategic capital. It's not someone that can bring relationships to bear. It's not someone that has a large portfolio of assets that can provide strategic value to metropolis. It's simple. It's an investor base that's willing to invest the time and understand our business. Uh, I think the, the biggest toxicity associated with investors today is not any sentiment of malintent. You know, so many entrepreneurs are worried about their board trying to do something to them. I don't yeah. think that's where uh, investment goes sideways. I think often there can be contentious relationship with investors because the investor doesn't invest the time to understand the business. And if they don't invest the time, they can't provide strategic value. If they invest the time, they provide strategic value. And we've assembled a, a suite of, we assembled a suite of successful investors in ParkMe, and we've assembled a suite of very successful investors at Metropolis. 
Um, but it was really interesting that my, my core focus shifted to find investors that really were going to always invest the time in understanding our business so they could come to a board table and they could talk as fluidly and as intelligently about my business as I do myself. And it's hard to find. Got it. So let me ask you this then, just really quickly so that people get it. I mean, how do you guys make money, you know, Metropolis? I mean, obviously, you know, the 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 approach and the problem, you know, very similar, you know, as you were mentioning, you know, that chip on the shoulder needed to be, you know, addressed. So um so how are you guys making money? What 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 does the model look like of Metropolis today? We we found Metropolis because we looked at the urban landscape. And the urban landscape today, Alejandro, is 14% of a city like Los Angeles, or like Sao Paulo, or like New York, is parking. The surface area is comprised of parking. Um, and it's never the highest and best use. So we looked at that underlying real estate and we said, how is that real estate going to evolve over the next, let's say, 20, 30, 50 years? And we realized that uh, the first way to look at that that fundamental infrastructure was to look at how it's being utilized today and see how we could shift that experience for the consumer. Could we create a paradigm shift uh, in how consumers interact with parking? This is the parking experience today is fundamentally broken. It's riddled with effectively a horrible experience. And Metropolis at our base, a computer vision-based operating system, um, we deploy camera-based solutions that provide, you could think about it akin to Amazon Go. So you think about you're going, to, have you been to an Amazon Go store before, Alejandro? Yes. yes. So you can think about that checkout-free or seamless commerce experience. Right. That experience whereby a consumer can pull into a Metropolis-enabled facility anywhere in the United States. Our camera technology recognizes their vehicle. You get a text welcoming you back. You park. You go to leave. The gate automatically vends. You get a text welcome, uh, thanking you for your visit and automatically charging you. Check out free commerce. You don't have to think about any of any of the normal pain points associated with parking. Very cool. So, so I guess you know, like going back to the to the investors. I mean, how how much capital have you guys raised to date for this? So, we founded the company right at the beginning of 2018, and we've raised right around 60 million dollars. And you were you were making a very good point, which I love, which is making sure that investors are gonna have the time, you know, that they have the time and they're gonna be putting the time to really understand the business and to be helpful with the business. When you're like going out and raising money and 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 finding people that you know have an interest in in putting money to work, you know, in your company, how are you able to filter them to really know whether or not they're gonna be able to put the time, you know, down the line? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Alejandro. I think that you start to realize right off the bat, or at least I've found that you do, right when you start to engage a venture capital firm or a private equity firm, the commitment they're, they're making to their underwriting or investment thesis. What type of questions are they asking? Do they fundamentally, by the third meeting, understand your business? Or are they still asking questions that you'd qualify as 101? How much diligence have they done? How many questions have they asked of the industry, of other experts? So I think there is this litmus test that effectively gets processed really early on in fundraising that allows you to garner a sense as to whether or not an investor is truly invested in what you're doing 
or they're just looking to write a check. Yeah, because the the spray and pray, you know, model is um, is definitely also it could be catastrophic because if the if the investor doesn't reinvest down the line, then you know, then there's like negative signals that are, that are, that are sent to the market where they are probably not executing the prorata or whatever, and then other you know newer investors on the next round they're going to be like, hold on, there's probably something off with with this business because these other investors are not reinvesting. So I think that that pray and spray. Uh, pay and sp- what is it? Pay and spray, or invest and, and pray, or whatever the hell it's called. You know, it's, 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 it could be like very negative. Yeah, yeah. In, in, what, what is it? What, what what is it? Pay and spray, or or invest and spray, or <laughs> spray and pray. There you go. There you go. So so I, I I I like the way that you look at it because I think that expectations also need to be completely met on both on both sides, and I find that when that level of communication doesn't happen pre-transaction, then post-transaction, it could be, you know, really, it could be lethal to the business. Yeah, I think entrepreneurs have to stick to their intuitions. You know, they have to understand that this person is really going to be by your side in good times and in bad. And how committed are they to your thesis? And how do they, do they really understand your thesis? I think you're absolutely right. This this spray and pray mentality leads to dynamics that are really unfavorable to entrepreneurs. To your point earlier, this idea of taking in a top-tier investor that may be a spray and pray investor, and they not follow on, even if they don't follow on at their pro rata level, it sends a message to the industry, whether perceived correctly or incorrectly, that there's something wrong. Uh, and I, I think that. Entrepreneurs as a whole don't spend enough time vetting their investors. A hundred percent. You know, it's like, oh, I want the money now. But I think that people don't realize that getting the money now, it could address your problems of being short on cash and getting that runway to be thinner. But it's just like putting a band-aid to something that is going to require surgery down the line. So I actually love the fact that you actually touched on that, Alex. That, that's amazing. Also, in your guys' case, too, you know, I know that you went, you know, through kind of like an M&A, you know, as we continue here talking about deal making, you went through an M&A that didn't have the outcome, you know, that was desired. So, so tell us what happened there. You know, uh, it's always interesting, M&A, <laughs> as I said earlier, I think, I don't think any M&A process goes the way you expect it to. But I think you're referring to an M&A transaction that we pursued very early in our business. You know, we we came out of the gate really swinging and we went to one of the largest real estate asset owners in the United States. They committed $300 million to Metropolis to acquire a, a third party. We started very aggressively diligencing that third party uh, with a with a great level of tenacity. Um, and we were probably about 45 days from closing the deal, um, which would have been, you know, a, a capitalization of $300 million into a, a company that had only been seed financed at the time. And the company we were going to acquire revenue went off a cliff. Um, and it was this amazing learning experience going from raising $300 million 
to looking at my counterparty and realizing we both had to walk away. Wow. Um, and that was, it was painful, candidly. Um, the, you know, the capital partner is still a very close colleague and, and working partner, but it was such a difficult transaction or a transition to go from thinking you were going to consummate a $300 million transaction to being back in a seed funded position. Um, in the end, myself and my executive team are thrilled we didn't consummate that transaction. That deal uh, continued to get more and more stressed, um, and it potentially could have been the downfall of our company. But it was it was strenuous unto itself to go from kind of this serial tech entrepreneur looking to acquire a, an asset for north of $300 million and then for that deal to fall through. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine, obviously, the the amount of time invested, you know, the emotional, you know, perhaps a attachment to that outcome, you know, which also it happens, you know, at certain points in that in that deal-making process. But, but look, you know, it's like things happen for a reason, no, as they say, you know, but, uh, but in your case, obviously, now, you know, things are you know, definitely going the, the, the right way. I mean, you guys are in this rocket ship, you know, and what I like to hear is, you know, as we're, you know, looking ahead and, and thinking about like what, you know, a world, you know, where, you know, imagine, you know, where you were to go to sleep at night and wake up, let's say five years later and, and you wake up and all of a sudden Metropolis, you know, is, 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 has finally being able to completely realize, you know, that, that vision, you know, that you had hope for, you know, when you guys got started, I mean, what would that world look like? You know, I'm sitting in my office right now, I'm overlooking Santa Monica and then to my left, the rest of Los Angeles. And for me, Alejandro, our, our vision is so closely linked to the urban landscape and how we would revision that urban landscape. What does that landscape look like over the next 20, 30, 50 years? And I am, as a, as a default, mobility obsessed. I, I spend most of my time thinking about future forms of mobility, whether it be vertical takeoff and landing drones, autonomous vehicles, scooters, fleets, and how those services can change and shift urban life and the, the ecosystems and equality that those transformations can afford. For me, one of the largest stepping stones are barriers from that future becoming, coming to fruition is fundamental infrastructure. Where do all of those vehicles go? What does the mobility hub of the future look like? How do you facilitate the cleaning, servicing, charging, and deployment of all future forms of mobility? And that's where Metropolis comes in. Metropolis is that glue, that empowerment, that fundamental service that empowers all future forms of mobility. And I think that we can look over our urban landscape and see that parking ecosystem be shifted to a higher and better use across the board and a fundamental service that would provide significant value both to consumers and to real estate asset owners. I love it. I love it. 
So, so imagine that I put you into a time machine and I'm able to bring you back in time. And I bring you back to that moment where you were thinking about, you know, giving your notice at one of those same big corporations that you were working at and, and building something of your own. I mean, bringing something to life. I mean, what obviously eventually became, you know, Park Me and, and what a success. No, but, but imagine that you were able to talk to that younger self, to that younger Alex that was thinking about doing something. And you were able to give that younger Alex one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? It's such an interesting question, Alejandro. I think that it would be to run. Um, and what I mean by that is... <laughs> I'm wondering, like, in what direction? <laughs> um, I think that, for me, the greatest threat for an entrepreneur or a company, a startup, is inertia. What's inevitable in every startup is failure. Whether it's failure on a daily basis or it's failure on an absolute timeline, every company fails at some point. And every entrepreneur fails at some point. It's how do you respond to that failure? It's how are you going to respond to the fundamental roller coaster that is founding a startup? And it's running full speed ahead. It's remaining diluted. Uh, it's, it's that delusion that this time is going to be different. I think that that is one of the fundamental traits that makes for a great entrepreneur. This idea that you're going to run through walls, that no matter what comes at you, you're going to survive and succeed and endure another day. I think that there are so many entrepreneurs that get dissuaded by failure. And most of us fail more on a daily basis or on a weekly basis than we succeed. The question is, how are you failing? Um, and can you fail up? And I think that I don't know if it's delusions. I don't know if it's persistence. But I think this idea of running full speed ahead, knowing you're not going to get it right, but knowing that you're going to keep moving forward, fighting off inertia, and just building momentum is, I think, a fundamental lesson because we just don't, none of us know, Alejandro. You, you've started multiple companies and everyone that I know that started a company thinks they have a plan for the future and it's going to unfold the way they think it's going to unfold and they're always wrong. Yeah. So you got to be prepared for those shifts, those challenges and those failures and you got to be prepared to just run through them. I love it. I mean, I love the what you're talking about failing up. Because I think that, you know, ultimately failure is just going to get you closer to success. So uh it's just like getting more swings at the bat. So uh I love that. So Alex, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Always a good question. I <laughs> I think at one point in my life, Alejandro, I would have said email. I will definitely say email is not the way to reach out. Um, if someone, you know, probably the, the method that is easiest to get in touch with me these days is LinkedIn, honestly. So if someone wants to reach out and, and request to connect, uh, probably the best tool or best method would be LinkedIn. Amazing. 
Well, Alex, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Alejandro, wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for, for having me on. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.